Hello everyone, and welcome to the November 18th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court upheld the admissibility of the reports of non-MPN physicians in a controversial case of Elaine Valdez versus Warehouse Demo Services. After reporting an injury, Elaine Valdez was sent for medical treatment to the employer's medical provider network where she was treated for her admitted industrial injuries. Later, she began treating with a non-NPN physician upon referral from her attorney. The WCAB in a split N-Bank decision ruled that non-NPN physician reports are not admissible when the employer has properly complied with medical provider network regulations. The WCAB reasoned that Labor Code Section 4616.6 says that no other reports shall be admissible to resolve any controversy. The Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB and remanded in an unpublished opinion. Before the new decision by the California Supreme Court recently enacted, Senate Bill 863 partially addressed this outcome. The new law provides that any report prepared by consulting or attending physicians shall not be the sole basis of an award of compensation. A qualified medical evaluator or authorized treating physician is required to address any additional report and shall indicate whether he or she disagrees or disagrees with the findings. The California Supreme Court decision is now the final word on this controversy. It concluded that the Court of Appeals sensibly limited the scope of Section 4616.6 to matters arising during the independent medical review process. It said that reading Section 4616.6 broadly to apply to all compensation proceedings is a manifest distortion. The board is broadly authorized to consider reports of attending or examining physicians. There is not an overarching legislative intent to limit the board's consideration of medical evidence. It remains unclear how much of a Pandora's box this case has opened. The panel QME system adopted in 2004 reduced the number of medical legal evaluations and some of the gamesmanship that took place in the selection of evaluators. A literal parsing of the Supreme Court's language in Valdez may have opened the door for the return of the old select who you want QME evaluation system or indeed even the use of non-QMEs to evaluate a case whenever an attorney deems it expedient to do so. It is unlikely that the applicant attorneys will not make as much use of the Valdez decision as possible. A federal judge has issued a preliminary injunction ending the application of the new lien activation fee imposed by Senate Bill 863. The order applies to all lien holders, not just a few who were plaintiffs in the federal lawsuit filed last summer. The order specifically prohibits the DWC from subjecting any existing workers' compensation lien holder to a lien activation fee pursuant to the Labor Code. The DWC also can no longer dismiss any lien for failure to pay an activation fee, nor 
Can it enforce any issued emergency regulations or any final regulation implementing any provision of the Labor Code pertaining to activation fees? The DIR may appeal this decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and, if unsuccessful, to the United States Supreme Court. The federal court system in California has been perceived as the most liberal in the nation and has frequently been the most reversed among the circuit courts. The workers' compensation industry had hoped that hundreds of thousands of dormant liens with no activation fees paid would be deemed invalid as a matter of law on January 1st, 2014. This would have cleared the system of a long-standing backlog. Unless the Ninth Court Circuit of Appeals reverses the injunction, this hoped-for outcome of Senate Bill 863 legislation will not be the case this January. Recent WCAB panel decisions have limited opportunities for double-dipping for some professional athletes. Recently, some athletes have settled their comp claims against their former teams and years later filed new claims against the same employer, hoping to avoid the, the effects of a prior settlement. The language of the standard CNR agreement is not exactly airtight. The fear of loopholes inspire many employers to strengthen the pre-printed language with a customized addendum. The claim of National Football League player Tony Dorsett is a recent example. The 59-year-old Hall of Fame running back was recently diagnosed with early signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a debilitating condition allegedly linked to repeated blows to the head while playing football. His claim was dismissed in May when a workers' compensation judge ruled that because Dorsett had agreed to an $85,000 settlement for injuries to multiple orthopedic body parts in 1991, he could not file another claim for any subsequent injury. Dorsett appealed that decision, but it was upheld in August. A three-judge panel found that language in the 1991 settlement released the Dallas Cowboys and Denver Broncos from all future claims involving virtually any body part, including the head. Since 2006, more than 3,500 former NFL athletes have filed workers' compensation claims in California alleging head and brain injuries. Another athlete with a brain injury claim who had previously settled his claim is Jimmy Giles, a former tight end with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. In 1991, Giles accepted a $75,000 settlement from five NFL teams for numerous orthopedic injuries to his back, wrist, ankles, and knees, among other body parts. Among the listed body parts was Giles' head. Roughly five years ago, 59-year-old Giles began complaining of memory loss and other problems and was eventually diagnosed with initial symptoms of dementia. He filed a brain injury claim in California in 2010, and in late September, a workers' compensation claim dismissed the claim. As in the Dorset case, a workers' compensation judge found that boilerplate language in the settlement precluded future injury claims. Los Angeles attorney Ron Feenberg, who is representing Giles, is appealing the decision. He argues that the case draws strong parallels to asbestos-related claims because 
it takes years for symptoms to surface. If Giles Appeal is successful, it could open the door to many more claims from athletes who long ago accepted workers' compensation awards only to develop serious brain disease years later. Late August, or last August, the WCAB denied reconsideration in the case of Fraser State versus State of California and approved a lower rating of permanent impairment based upon language in the AMA Guide's sixth edition. This case would have opened the door to ratings outside of the AMA Guide's fifth edition for the first time. But the WCAB on its own motion reversed itself. Edward Fraser, a peace officer with the Department of Corrections, had a presumptive industrial heart trouble with diagnosed hypertensive heart disease accompanied by mild left ventricular hypertrophy. The AME said that under the AMA guides, 5th edition table 4-2, he would have a 30% whole person impairment. However, the AME also said that this whole person impairment, while appropriate, is not an accurate representation of the injured worker's impairment. The writers of this recent 6th edition decided that the 30% whole person impairment was too high for an asymptomatic mild ventricular hypertrophy. The 6th edition would rate 24% instead. The 24% impairment after the formal rating resulted in a permanent partial disability of 44%, which was awarded by the workers' compensation judge. The WCAB denied reconsideration. However, the panel now seems to have had, had second thoughts. On its own motion, the WCAB rescinded its prior order and returned the Fraser case back to trial for a new decision. The second decision concluded that use of the agreed medical exam, the AMA guides, sixth edition, is contrary to the mandatory language in Labor Code Section 4660B1, stating that impairments shall be rated utilize, utilizing whole person impairments reflected in the AMA Guide's 5th edition. There's absolutely no support in any case law suggesting that impairment ratings from the AMA Guide's 6th edition may be used to rate permanent disability even if the physician believes, as did the agreed medical examiner here, that the AMA Guide's 6th edition more accurately reflects whole person impairment. Johnson & Johnson will pay more than $4 billion to settle thousands of lawsuits over its recalled defective hip implants. The tentative plan, which must be court approved, represents one of the largest payouts for product liability claims involving a medical device. The agreement will include those patients who have already been forced to have the device known as the Articular Surface Replacement, or ASR, removed and replaced with another artificial hip. Each patient would receive about $350,000 on average in compensation, though that figure will vary depending on factors like a patient's age and medical condition. The precise value of the settlement is unclear because lawyers for patients are still trying to estimate how many of the 12,000 related lawsuits involve patients who have had a replacement. 
The ASR hip was sold until mid-2010, when a company recalled it amid sharply rising early failure rates. The device had a metal ball and a metal cup that sheds metallic debris as it wears, generating particles that have damaged nearby tissue in some patients. Many artificial hips over the last 15 years, last 15 years, or more before they wear out. But the ASR was failing at high rates in patients after just a few years. About 93,000 patients received an ASR. About one-third of them were in the United States. And now our fraud report. An Orange County physician who admitted that he illegally prescribed addictive painkillers to patients he barely examined during meetings at Starbucks stores was sentenced to over 11 years in federal prison. 44-year-old Alvin Mixtajitz Yi of Mission Viejo was taken into custody in 2011 after a year-long investigation resulted in a grand jury indictment. Yi pleaded guilty in April to seven counts of illegal distribution of a controlled substance by a practitioner. Yi met with numerous patients, including three undercover operatives, during evening meetings at Starbucks across Orange County. He wrote prescriptions for drugs best known by brand names such as OxyContin, Vicodin, and Xanax. One-third of his patients were no older than 25. He met with up to a dozen people every night of the week and provided them with prescriptions in exchange for cash. Some of these patients were arrested with large quantities of opiates in Seattle, Phoenix, and Detroit. Yi's illegal prescription contributed to the deaths of two of his patients. And in medical news, prescribing powerful painkillers known as opiates carries risks for addiction, misuse, and accidental overdose. Opium-related drugs like OxyContin, Percocet, Percodan, and Methadone can be very addictive and are usually prescribed for just a week or two for intense short-term pain. Sales of opiates in the United States has increased by 300% since 1999. Three out of four deaths due to prescription drugs overdose involve opiates. And for every death, there are 10 admissions to treatment centers for addiction. Many organizations offer guidelines for doctors, but it wasn't clear if they agreed or differ differed greatly. So researchers at the School of Medicine at UCLA set out to review the published guidelines. Surprisingly, the team found that most of them agreed on key points. There is widespread agreement about some basic ways of mitigating the risks associated with prescribing opiates for chronic pain. Most guidelines recommended that clinicians avoid doses greater than 9,200 milligrams of morphine equivalents daily. Doctors should also increase dosages slowly and monitor for side effects when first prescribing the drugs and reduce doses by at least 25% to 50% when switching opiates. Guidelines agreed as well 
that opiate risk assessment tools, written treatment agreements, and urine drug testing can help to manage risks of overdose and misuse. More research is needed to determine the quality of these guidelines and whether they're actually being followed by the doctors. Doctors also make decisions based on online literature, lectures, journal articles, advice from other physicians, and personal experience. Some experts say that many of the recommendations pointed out in the review are not routinely used in many, if not most, clinical practices where opiates for chronic pain are prescribed. Most medical school curriculums are notably lacking courses on pain and addiction. Educating doctors, especially primary care doctors, is the most important next step. And in regulatory news, the Department of Workers' Compensation has posted a revised version of QME Form 105, as well as helpful instructions for its completion. Form 105 is used to request a panel qualified medical evaluator examination for an unrepresented employee. A Spanish language version of the form and instructions for its use will soon be available. In addition to the revised Form 105, instructions for the completion of QME Form 106 used to request a panel QME for a represented employee and QME Form 37 used to request factual correction of an unrepresented panel QME report have been posted. Data compiled by the State Office of Self-Insurance Plans, or OSIP, says that workers' compensation claim frequency among California's private self-insured employers showed almost no change in 2012. A slight increase in the incidence of medical-only claims was offset by a slight reduction in indemnity claim frequency. OSIP's annual summary provides the first snapshot of California private self-insured claims experienced for cases reported in 2012. Private self-insured employers covered more than 2 million employees last year. They reported a total of about 77,500 claims in 2012 nearly unchanged from the prior year. Total wages and salaries for private self-insured employees totaled $83.6 billion. The report shows that last year was the first time since 2005 that both average paid and average incurred losses per private self-insured claim declined. The OSIP annual summaries for both private and public self-insured claims from each of the 10 most recent years are posted online. The DWC has issued a notice of public hearing to revise the recently adopted resource-based relative value scale based physician fee schedule. The hearing has been scheduled for 10 a.m. December 12th in room one of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comment on the regulations until 5 p.m. that day. The RBRVS-based physician fee schedule regulations were adopted and filed with the Secretary of State last September and will be effective January 1st. The proposed amendment eliminates use of the Federal Office of Workers' Compensation Program's relative value units 
resource-based relative value scale is a scheme used to determine how much money medical providers should be paid. It is partially used by Medicare in the United States and by nearly all health maintenance organizations. RB, RVS, assigns procedures performed by a physician or other medical provider a relative value which is adjusted by geographic region. This value is then multiplied by a fixed conversion factor, which changes annually to determine the amount of payment. RBRVS determines prices based on three separate factors, physician work, practice expense, and malpractice expense. RBRVS was created at Harvard University and published in 1988. Physicians bill their services using procedure codes developed by a 17-member committee known as the CPT Editorial Panel. The AMA nominates 11 of the members, while the remaining seats are nominated by the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, the Health Insurance Association of America, CMS, and the American Hospital Association. The CPT committee issues new codes twice each year. A separate committee, the Specialty Society Relative Value Scale Update Committee, meets three times a year to set new values, determines the relative value units for each new code, and re-evaluates all existing codes at least once every five years. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, and Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.